Psalm 24. This particular psalm really was, if you've got several questions you want to, if you can catch up, keep up with me here. Uh, it was written to commemorate the bringing back of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem the right way, if you would. The first time it happened in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, I believe it was, 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, when Uzzah, the second question asked you what disastrous they got an ox or a cart, a new, uh, sorry, that's how the Philistines got it back there, but they were carrying it and the Ark shook and Uzzah, just out of, or maybe just, out of, just touched it, was struck dead, etc. God's way, telling David that. And so he finally is going to bring it back the right way. They're going to put it in a, a tent. Remember, the temple's not been built yet, so they're going to put a tent on Mount Moriah. And so Psalm 24, it's like they're heading up to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant. 21, 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. The choir begins to sing, and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Then King David burst into song. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? The choir then takes up the response, the theme. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of seek, that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. And then there's the word Selah. I like what Dr. Phillips says there. What do you think of that? Wow. Or a musical interlude, if you want. That's what Selah means. Stop and pause and think. Presently, the king, the choir, and the priest, rejoicing people, they all arrive. If you picture it now, the top of, uh, of the hill there, the massive gates of Jerusalem, and David sings, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And someone, the sentinel imply, inside replies, who is the king of glory? And David says, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And the gates remain closed, so the whole choir picks it up. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Again, the question from inside, the ceremonial question, who is the king of glory? Then the king and the choir, and they all answer the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There. Now, what, what do you think of that? Wouldn't you love to see that? It would have been amazing. Let's pray. It will help us as we think about this wonderful psalm tonight. That we'll be able to enjoy the purpose of it, the rejoicing of it, the Lord's call, his claim, his commands upon our lives. May we rejoice together this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, when the Jews established their liturgy, now if you remember, if you would want to be accurate, probably in our labeling, which I did not do for a long time, prior to the captivity, after the fall of Jerusalem, 586, captivity, and then after that, then Judaism came on the scene, and they were actually called Jews. Before that, it was, they were called Israelites, if you would. So when the Judaisms finally set up the liturgy, they would sing a psalm every day. This is question three. Monday, Psalm 48, Tuesday, Psalm 82, Wednesday, Psalm 94, Thursday, Psalm 81, Friday, Psalm 93, Sabbath day, 92. And on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus arose, it was Psalm 24. 24 was assigned to the first day of the week. So the day the Lord rose from the dead, guess what the Jews were singing at some point in time during the day? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we see three things, the Lord's claim, the Lord's call, the Lord's coming, the Lord's claim, he announces to the angelic host in verse 1 and to all the powers that be, the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof. He, I was reading a couple nights ago. He laughs at the title deeds of worms of the dust. We, we claim, well, this is mine, or that is mine, or uh, let me tell you, you own your house or whatever as, as long as you pay your taxes. <laughs> you stop paying your taxes, you might not own that that much longer. You may get away for a while, but that really is only your, only, this, this is my father's world. It is his. Now, he has loaned it out, or he's allowed people to take out Satan to have his own domain for a little bit. We understand that. But the wealthiest owner, the most absolute despot, is but a tenant who may at any moment receive notice to vacate. And so that is, that's what we are. And um, this is my father's world. So every part of the planet belongs to God by right of creation. Now, of course, question four, you understand that our Lord's ultimate territorial claims and space embrace much farther than just the earth. All these, we talked about last week, all the stars and all the galaxies are his. He made them. He sits upon his throne in space and he looks about and looks at all the galaxies with two 200 billion galaxies. That was the smallest of the estimates. 200 billion. And he looks about and he looks at, they finds ours, the Milky Way. You can get to the sun. If you and I started jogging at light speed just now, we could get to the sun in 93 million miles. And you know how long it take us? Eight minutes. Just eight minutes. And we could be to the sun, 93 million miles. You know how long it take just to go across our galaxy? It would take 100 Oh, sorry, 30,000 light years uh, go across our galaxy. It actually, it's more than that. Uh, I'm sorry. This is quite a good distance. It is a long way. There's 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone. For our little sun to rotate around, if you would, the galaxy, they estimate, I'm estimating, 200 million years. Just for us, our, our little solar system, to, uh, to go around our part of our solar system, this galaxy there. And so of all the planets, billions and hundreds of billions in our little galaxy alone, he looks at the earth. And he says in our text, the earth is the Lord's. Now that one is mine. Now, why should he bother with us? After all, this world is, in which we live is such a puny little place compared to the relative vastness of even our own sun, which is a puny compared to the vastness of other stars. There's a star we talked about last time that can hold five million suns. Five million suns in that one star alone. One writer said it, this is, I think we're on page two now, that we should call it the silent planet for we have no song anymore. I think I could, one, I think I would call it the sobbing planet for all the sin and the cries of anguish that is heard coming up from the earth. But Christ, God has put his eyes upon our planet. Now, why does he bother with that? Question number six, it's because of what happened here. That is why the earth is so important in all. The, I don't believe there's a place for the Klingons or the Romulans or the Remans or the Vulcans. Those are all figments of our imagination. But there is a planet called earth on which human beings, for which Jesus died. And that is the center, if you would, of God's universe, if you want to think of it that way. Prior to June 15, 1815, no one had probably even heard of a little town called Waterloo in France. It was just a little tiny microscopic village. So small, totally insignificant. It wasn't even on, worth putting on a map. And yet it was there on that Sunday morning in 1815 that Wellington met Napoleon. And the Iron Duke Wellington overcome Napoleon and defeated Napoleon. And the world history was changed at Waterloo. 
So now you know why he met his Waterloo. That's where it comes from. He met his Waterloo. But it's important because of what happened at Waterloo, not because of some huge city. Our earth is happened because of what because of what had happened here. Now, sin, question seven, did not begin on this earth. It began, I believe, in heaven with Satan, and he was cast to the earth. It was not born in the breast of Adam or Eve. Sin was, yes, it's an exotic import. It has been invaded, earth has been invaded once by Satan. It's invaded twice by the Savior who came down to die for us. And it's going to be invaded a third time when he comes back for his people, not all the way to the earth, but up in the sky. He's going to be, our atmosphere will be invaded by God once again. So Satan, we can just imagine now that Satan got Eve and Adam to sin. Can you imagine he may have just like turned toward the Lord for just a little bit before the Lord came down, a little bit of a smirk? Yeah, okay. Look, Lord, God, these are your, your, your creation here and they're already sinning. Mm-hmm. And so imagine that, but he's not going to be smirking for very long, as you well know. But literally, no, before time even began, he really fell into, if you would, a trap. It was an ambush, if you would, because God was going to use him to tempt Adam and Eve, and God's plan of redemption was involved so much. Satan being used by God to accomplish his purposes. We find in that uh, it was brought to the head, this mystery of iniquity brought to the head on our little planet, planet Earth. And we find that Satan is involved, Adam and Eve are involved. And ever since then, every single human being has been born with a, a sin nature. We understand that. So our little world spins and chasing the sun, carrying us along as it goes. We are traveling, I, I, don't, I don't want to say, I like it's like 25,000 miles an hour. I can't remember how fast it is, but we're traveling pretty fast. We're 25,000 miles in circumference. And so we're traveling along, but God's watching. He's not abandoning us. Oh, no. God has chosen us, chosen this little planet of of all the planets in our solar system alone, our galaxy, sorry. The earth is the Lord's and they that dwell therein. So that's the Lord's claim. Secondly, in three, we see the Lord's call. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Now, it is true that the earth is the Lord's. We understand that. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Matter of fact, he owns the cattle on all the hills. The wealth in every mine. He owns all of that. It is all his we understand it. He owns every every nook and cranny. But there's a special place he puts his sight upon. Now, the Palestinians, question nine, I think it is, say that that uh, Jerusalem belongs to them. I just texted even today. I was, I was at lunchtime. I said, who does Jerusalem belong to? Of course, it depends on, depends on who you start reading. Well, if you get into the air, Al-Khazira, 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 whatever it is, they say, well, it's, it's a Muslim place and the Muslims own it. God, it's God's. David took it from the Jebusites in his time frame, and it's, it's God's chosen city. The United Nations, I think, at one point said it was theirs. It doesn't belong to them, and they don't belong anywhere. It never be- did. It belongs to him. It's his city. Of all the cities on earth, you need to just stay out of that one if you're not godly or you don't want to get in good, because that's his. You know, you know if, you, if you want to eat food, do not put it in IT, our cat's bowl, because he just, rawr, 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 he's the cat back. And so if you, if you want to go to a city and you're a, you hate God, don't go to Jerusalem because of all places in the world that God has put his sight, it's upon Jerusalem. 
You learn from the psalm, though, that there is two places he specially lays claim to. Question 10, one is called the hill, the other is called the holy place. The hill is Mount Zion. The holy place is Mount Moriah. Now, the hill, Mount Zion, is the heart of the country. He who owns the hill holds the city, if you would. He who held the city held the country. And he who holds the country ultimately holds the world, if you would. Mount Zion is the hill, the center of secular power. And then the holy place, or Mount Moriah, where the temple was to stand, that's the center of spiritual power. Do you remember what is the first, I think, in Genesis, the very first mention of Moriah? Genesis 22, where Abraham offers willing to offer Isaac on the altar. That's, that's Mount Moriah. And first, I think that's the first encounter of Moriah we see in scriptures. Well, so the hill stands for all the dynamics of secular power, and the holy place stands for the dynamics of spiritual power. So are we ready to listen to the Lord's call? Something like this. In the day that is coming by and by, when I set up my kingdom on this little planet in space, in the day of my glory, who wants to share in everything that will happen in the hill and everything that will happen in the holy place? Who wants to share in, in all the glory, the dynamics of secular and spiritual power in the day of my glory? And that's the, really the question he asked today. Who wants to share in God's glory in the future? Who does? It's quite an offer, you know. Do you remember it was uh, James and John's mother, I think her Salome was her name, I believe, who said, uh, can, can my, when you come into your kingdom, well, it's Matthew 20, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? She said unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. Now that was a noble request. What more noble request can a parent or a grandparent have than their child to be serving God's kingdom? That is a, certainly is a noble request, but it wasn't his to give. 22, but Jesus answered and said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and to be baptized in the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we are able. And he saith unto them, ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism with I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but is given to them of for whom it is prepared of my father. Request denied, if you would, not mine to give. It has to be earned. Just as much as salvation is a free gift, unmerited, given to us by God, by grace through faith, so are, he never gives unrewarded, unmerited rewards. They have to be earned. So if you're going to get rewards, you need to earn those. Salvation is by grace. Repent, believe, receive, call upon him. But to receive a reward, he doesn't give those unmerited. So you have the Lord's call. And here are the conditions. First of all, number one is Christ-likeness of life. Who shall ascend? Who shall stand? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. One man said it would be impossible to condense into so few words a more beautiful and comprehensive description of true holiness, clean hands, and a pure heart. Can you imagine a king who's getting ready to sit down to supper and his servant comes in from having dug these huge carrots out of the ground and his hands are covered with dirt and everything and his fingernails would have, have those little crawly things underneath and he's, oh, I'm going to feed you your supper. And the king's going to go, whoa, you're not in my presence. You're not clean hands. We want some clean hands for you to start serving supper here, please. Go get straightened up and a pure heart that's the outward pure heart is the inward it must be a work of grace at the at, at the core of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand he puts the hands and hearts together if you're going to serve me it's part of the practical it's part of your inward it's part of your outward it's your whole being 
your Christian walk outflows from your walk with the Lord internally. Christ-likeness of life, outward life clean, inward life clean. Christ-likeness, secondly, in verse 4 of longings, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Now, what does it remind you? It reminds us of probably the king who brought more disgrace to the nation of Israel, more to destroy it than any other king. Solomon. Solomon did more to destroy than uh, the kingdom of, of Israel because why? Because he brought in all the foreign gods. He had Saul, and then David comes on the scene and serves the Lord, turns it over with all the money to make the build the temple, and Solomon, well, he lifted up his soul into vanity. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher who wrote those words. Right? It, it, it's Solomon. Uh, and Ecclesiastes is a wail of despair over a misspent life. Can you imagine Solomon had everything the world could offer? And I think he tried all the things he should not have tried as well. I'm telling you, 700 and 300 wives and concubines are just too many. He had to marry one every two and a half weeks. If he married him during his reign, every two and a half weeks. Get to marry somebody new. You're hardly over the honeymoon and you're marrying somebody else. So he has the vanity of a misspent life. The word vanities means chasing the wind. That's what he had been doing for years, living for the wrong world. Now he says, the Lord, who wants to have a share in the dynamics of both of the secular and spiritual power in the days of my glory? Clean hands, pure heart. So Christ's likeness of life, Christ's likeness of longings. And it's not sworn deceitfully. He hasn't wasted his life on the world systems. He's not been cha- the world system. He's not been chasing the world like, like the wind rushes around. And thirdly, Christ likeness of language who has nor sworn deceitfully. False swearing is the worst, or at any rate, one of the worst sins of the tongue. And any, in other words, he'll be looking for people who are absolutely dependable, utterly trustworthy. When they say, "I'm going to do that." Your word is your bond. That's what we're looking for. I'll do that. I'll serve a church. I'll work in the children's ministry. I'll sing in the choir. I'll pray. I'll drive the church van, church bus. I'll do this, this, this. When you say we're going to do that, then we do that. That's just part of part of what it is. Christ's likeness of language. Your word is your bond as you serve the Lord. Whatever he called you to do, I'll be faithful in praying. I'll pray, pray for everybody in our church. I'll, I'll put, uh, divide them up. Uh, over seven days and every week, once a week, I'm praying for you. Do, do those things, what the Lord allows you and you can do. The Lord's claim, the Lord's call. He wants to have a share in everything that's going to happen on the hill in that holy place, in the day of glory, Christ-likeness of life, longings, and language. And thirdly, is the Lord's coming. Now, question 12. What phrase is it there? What phrase is used five times in these verses? The king of glory. That's the phrase you're looking for. Who is the king of glory? Handle included that in the Messiah. Uh, Twice the challenge is issued at the gates of glory to be lifted up. So the king of glory. Twice the question is asked, who is the king of glory? One time the answer is the Lord, strong and mighty, the mighty in battle. The second time is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. That's just not some holy ghost rhetoric, you know. Uh, There's got to be a reason for this. Why the question twice in a row? But the Lord had stepped off his throne into heaven. He's come down to earth. He has been born as a man to to marry the God-man. He lived a sinless life. 
he died and was gloriously raised from the death. He was the Lord strong and mighty in battle. He won every victory. Every time Satan came along and tried to tempt him or did tempt him, he never sinned. He was impeccable. That means he was incapable of sinning. Some maybe some would teach or sort of postulate the peccability of God because he had a human nature. And some would I firmly have stood on the impeccability of God. God could not have sinned. There's, there's no sin in him to do that thing. Yes, he had a, a perfect sinless human nature, a perfect sinless God nature. He's the perfect one. I think you're going to start down a, probably a wrong kind of trail when you say, well, God really could have sinned. He could, he could have sinned right there. I'm telling you, stick with the impeccability of our Savior. He won. Not once in thought, word, or deed. Can you imagine you and I living for one hour? Without a thought, word, or deed that's displeasing to God. For uh, 33 years he did that. Not once did Satan win the slightest victory. And so when it's asked there, who is this? It's the Lord strong and mighty, the mighty in battle. Him writer said, vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose, what? A victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose strong and mighty, Lord, mighty in battle. So he was on earth for how many days was it after the resurrection? 40 days, 40 days, appearing here and there, appearing only to those who trusted him that were believers. He gathered this little group around him, and on his 40th day, he had uh, going to the streets, they're walking through there as a group, he heads over the Kidron Valley, go up the mountain, all of that, and, and just right there, he all of a sudden, after he says some words, he starts going up in the air, and he ascends back to heaven. So significant that there are 20 distinct references to the Lord's ascension in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit uses 13 different words to describe him returning in the clouds back to heaven. They were stunned in the amazement of what, at this, and of course, as you well know, angels appeared. You fellows, he's coming back. And then as David, writing under the inspiration, we come to verse 7. And the Lord, we can picture, envision it now, put on your whole sanctified imagination. He comes to the throne or the gates of heaven. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. We can imagine the sentinel standing there and peering, maybe opens the, the door. Wow, uh, uh, who is the King of glory? And he raises his nail-scarred hands. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. I mean, you just imagine real quickly, he said, oh, yes, let's open the doors. And he goes down, hallelujah, as Philip says, hallelujah, Avenue, Amen Square, around Hosanna Highway and up Beulah Boulevard and right to the throne of God. He does something no man has ever done before. He sits down on the right hand of the throne of God. Lord strong and mighty, still wearing the scars of Calvary. Now, between verse 8 and 9, which David did not see, we can probably insert the entire church age. He's up in heaven now. He's the Father's right hand. He's waiting for the Lord, his Father, to say, Son, get your children. Neither did the Old Testament, did they understand all about the church age. And so at the end of verse 8, we can put the 2,000 years, so or a little bit more now, of the church age, calling out people by his name. Sometimes he calls them by the groups of maybe hundreds 
The revivals of the past. Don't you wish the revivals of the past were something of the now? But sometimes by ten, sometimes often those by one, by parents and, grand, and grandparents telling their children over and over, and then finally, I'm ready to give my heart and life to Christ, and they get saved. And what a wonderful thing that is. And God's building his church. It's Jesus' church. And we can see he's watching, and, he, and maybe as a, a one gets saved, maybe as Jacob got saved last week, well, here comes another, Father. Here, all that you have given to me have come to me. And then they come to him, you, you've never cast any out. And finally, that last one's going to come, perhaps today. And the father's going to say, son, as the songwriter said, Mr. Day, son, go get your children. And he's going to get off, his, off, off the throne, as Solomon said. He will cry, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And the graves, as he comes down in the air, the graves will burst asunder. And in Richmondale, Ohio, at the cemetery there, there's going to be some happening place. Six in a row. Boom, 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 boom. Just like popcorn, they're going to go out and my mom and dad and my, my, both of my sets of grandparents will go up together. And then you and I, who are alive, who are still alive, changed in a moment. To, and we'll all go up to meet him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So he's going to take this enormous, enormous group of the church. And we're headed back, if you will, to the celestial gates. And we pick up then at verse 9. Instead of David and the choir... You have the King David, if you want, the son of David, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the whole church age all together. And they say in verse 9, lift up your heads, or Christ will say, lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And we can imagine he opens up, and his jaw drops, the sentinel inside the gate. Who, who is the King of glory? And then everybody, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Amen. Open the gates, here we come, and there we are, and going. Now, that's, I know it's a little bit of a sanctified imagination thing, but that's what I believe is David's talking about here. And we go down just like he had earlier, and we go to the throne of God, and he sits down again, and he says, Here, Father, all the ones that you gave me, they are all here. I've lost not a one. And he'll turn to us and say, You know, we're going to go back. And see, here's where it comes to home to us. I included it in your outline. And we're going to go back, and he might well say to us now, I'm going to get up off my father's throne, page four, and going to go down there and put on, put an end to what is going on. Praise the Lord for that. And sit upon the throne of my father David. And I'm going to set up an empire on that little planet in space, the likes of which the world has never seen. And I shall be needing people to help me run the empire. So gather around, my friends. Let me see your hands. And let me see your heart. For what world did you live? And when, he, when you said you'd do something, did you do it? Who shall ascend in the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy, hand, holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's the Lord's claim. It is his earth. It's the Lord's call. He's called all of us to serve him, and it's the Lord's coming. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew the song we will sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. And that is the glory of Psalm 24. Who is the king of glory?
the Lord of hosts, he is now and always will be the King of glory. Let us rejoice. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful psalm. Lord, the return of the Son to heaven after going up into heaven from accomplishing your will here on earth, giving his life, being gloriously raised. The return of Jesus for his church and we going back to heaven with him to dwell. And then finally, we're going back and, and we'll be with him to serve him forever and ever. Lord, we gladly bow before the King of glory. The earth is the Lord's. Lord, I am yours. I have been a wayward sheep far too much in my life at times. Forgive me. Lord, help us all to be followers of the shepherd this week. Give us opportunities to share this wonderful news in a world that seems quickly going downhill. May we offer to them through the Spirit's power the gift of everlasting life in the person of Jesus. And ask these things in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.